Welcome to the App Store Regent Street in London. You please welcome um, your host for this evening, Viv Kroskop. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robin. A um, well, very warm welcome to all of you to tonight's event at the Apple Store with Gretchen Rubin. Uh, Gretchen is not only a brilliant author and general authority on life, she is also, as far as I'm concerned, we've only just met, my guru uh, because she knows everything about how to run your life more efficiently. Um, let me just introduce myself before we start. My name's Viv Groskop. I'm a writer and a broadcaster. You might recognize my name from the pages of The Guardian where I review books, or my voice from BBC Radio 4 where I'm often on front row. Um, but it's not about me tonight. It's about Gretchen. And we're going to be spending about 30, 40 minutes in conversation. Then we'll open it up to you to ask any questions. So please welcome uh, the best-selling author of The Happiness Project and now of the brilliant new book, Better Than Before, Gretchen Rubin. Well, thank you so much. And I'm so thrilled to have the chance to sit down with you because I'm. Th this is going to be so fun. Yes, you are my guru. So explain. Well, I, I feel uh, like a I want to get a T-shirt that says yeah, that. You need to get a T-shirt. So just explain. I'm sure lots of people have come tonight because they're fans of yours and they know about your work from your extensive digital activities, which is where it all started with your website and your interaction with your readers even before the Happiness Project came about. But for anyone who doesn't know what it is that you do, can you just tell us? what you say to people when you meet someone at a party and they ask, what do you do? Uh, well, well, in one word, I say I'm a writer. Um, but I do have, uh, I have books. I have a website. I now have a podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, which I do with my sister. Um, I'm on all the social media. But I guess if I had to say what my subject is, I would say my subject is human nature. And what really fascinates me is why do we do what we do, um, how, and how to understand the very obvious, not the subtle things, but the, the really obvious things that maybe elude our understanding. And then once you know about human nature, what can you do differently? Mm -hmm. And how did you come towards this? Because your background is in law originally, right? No, yeah, I was actually clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who's you know one of the Supreme Court justices, so it was, a very, it was like hardcore law. Um, when I realized that I actually wanted to be a writer. And at that point, I was working on a huge research project, which um, turned into my first book, which was called Power, Money, Fame, Sex, A User's Guide, which is like a satirical user's guide, sort of the opposite of the happiness project. Um, and I thought, you know, I would rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer at this point, so I should really give it a shot. And I decided to try giving writing it. Uh, a chance, and mm -hmm. then I switched. Mm -hmm. And we should say for anyone who doesn't know, as if it's not obvious, that obviously you're not from around here. This is the first of four UK events you're doing on a little mini UK tour. But normally, where are you based? I, I live in New York City, um, mm -hmm. and so that's where that's where I'm based. Mm -hmm. So tell us a bit first of all, then, about the background to Better Than Before, because first of all came the Happiness Project, right? Tell us about that. So I wrote The Happiness Project because I had this moment on a bus one day when I thought, what do I want from life anyway? I want to be happy. But I realized I didn't spend any time thinking about whether I was happy or how to be happier. So I decided, well, I'm going to have a happiness project. And that's, I, it came to me in that phrase. 
And at first I was gonna do it just for myself, but as soon as I started researching happiness, because I often go on these big research tangents just on my own for fun, um, I realized it was such a deep, rich topic that I wanted to write a whole book about it. At that time I was finishing a biography of Kennedy, JFK. Um, and then I wrote, and then I wanted to go deeper into happiness, so I wrote a book, Happier at Home, which is really looking at home as an organizing principle, because I'm always searching for universals. What is universal? Not that much is universal, but the idea of home is practically universal. But as I was talking and thinking and writing about happiness, I began to notice a pattern which was that when I would talk to people about a big happiness challenge they faced, they often would point to something that at its core was a problem with a habit. So like, people would say to me like, I'm just exhausted all the time, that's my problem. So it wasn't that they didn't know what was dragging them down, they knew, but why weren't they able to change it? Well, because of the habit of getting enough sleep. And I realized more and more when people were talking about something that was kept, kept dragging them down, it was because they were having trouble with a habit. And so I became really interested in the question of why is it that it's, how do we change habits? Sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's too easy. Um, what's going on? What are the elements that allow people to change their habits? So that's what I decided to tackle and better than before. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot of the approach in your work is to look at a universal question and then ground it in something very specific, often starting with the personal. So what was the starting point in Better Than Before when you started to look at habits and thought, okay, where are my habits that could be improved? Well, I really became obsessed with the question of habits at this very casual lunch I had with a friend. And um, I was starting to be interested in habits. And so I, and I do have a very bad habit of grilling people about anything that I'm interested in. So at this point, I was like, what are your habits? What's working for you? And she said to me, and this like set me off for years, she said to me, well, here's the weird thing. I really wish that I could exercise. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team. And I never missed track practice. But I can't go running now. Why? And I thought, well, why? It's the same person, it's the same behavior. At one time it was effortless, now she can't do it. What is going on? And at that point, I was like, I, I'm determined to solve the mystery of habits because there has to be an explanation. What is going on? Because this sounded so familiar to me. I'm like, what could she do? Like, what are, the, what are the strategies that she could use to change that habit? And what is preventing her from changing that habit? Well, I think that's something that everybody identifies with is that you know that you have had a good habit at some point yeah. and then you don't have it anymore. Yeah. How do you get it back again? Well, that's a very good question to ask yourself. And whenever you're trying to figure out a habit, a really good thing to consider is, have I succeeded in the past with this habit? Because there's often a clue. So with my friend with the track team, the clue is external accountability. She's the kind of person who's absolutely dependent on external accountability in order to meet her expectations for herself. So when she had a team, when she had a coach, she could do it. And so what is the clue for the present? She needed to work with a trainer. She needed to take a class. She needed to have an accountability bud buddy. Um, she needed external accountability. I talked to somebody who was like, she was like, I, I thought I hated cooking. I hated cooking. I refused to cook. And then I remembered right after I got out of college, I lived in a group house. And I cooked all the time then. What was different? 
The difference was her roommate loved to food shop, so there was always food around. It turned out my friend didn't have a trouble with cooking. She hated grocery shopping. And so when she thought about when she succeeded in the past, she understood how she could change things in the present. So that's a very good question to ask yourself. Well, th yeah, and it's, well, it's very interesting that you mentioned this idea of external accountability because this is key to the four personality types that you identify in Better Than Before as available on iBooks, etc. Um, and there are these four different types, and one of them is really motivated by external accountability. The one that I most closely identifies with never wants any external accountability, because if I tell anyone what I'm going to do, then I really don't want to do it. And that is known as the rebel, which I really like. Um, but just tell us a bit about those four types, and right. which one are you, and which yeah. one is the external accountability? Right. Are you external accountability? No, I'm no. A, no. No. Um, okay, so I'll explain these really quickly, and then I'll have you raise your hands, because it's always fun to see what people are. And by the way, there's, if you can't figure out from this conversation, there's a quiz on my site, GretchenRubin.com, that like, like almost 150,000 people have taken at this point. So you can take the quiz there if you can't figure it out. But most people know pretty quick what they are. Okay, so this has to do with how you deal with external expectations, like a work deadline, and inner expectations, which is like your own desire to keep a New Year's resolution. So the first tendency is the upholder tendency. And upholders respond readily to outer and inner expectations alike. So they meet a work deadline, they keep a New Year's resolution without much trouble. That they're ba is th they're th basically really annoying. Well, <laughs> the few, the proud, the upholders. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. They, You're an They're upholder. often accused of being rigid. I mean, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Perfect. Next are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll meet an expectation if they think it makes sense. They hate anything irrational or arbitrary. They always want a lot of information. They always want to know, why am I going to do what you say? Who are you? Why am I listening to you? So in a way, they make everything an inner expectation because they'll only meet that expectation if they sort of endorse it. Questioner. Next, obliger. That's my friend on the track team. They readily meet outer expectations, but they have trouble meeting inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline, but they can't keep their New Year's resolution. That's probably the largest tendency. And then rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what crazy. They want to do crazy. what they want to do when they want to do it in their own way. And if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to do the opposite. So they're very motivated by choice and freedom. Okay, so who here is in my camp? Upholders. Upholder. Up, upholder uh, readily is... meet outer and inner. Mm. Okay. How many people are questioners? Questioners question all expectations, outer and inner alike. Okay. Mm, obligers. Right. Obligers readily meet outer, have trouble meeting inner. Rebels. Rebels resist all outer and inner alike. Yay. Okay. This is very typical because rebel is by far the smallest tendency, but it's very obvious. Like, you know a rebel if you know one. But what was a surprise to me when I wrote the book was that the upholder tendency is also very small, as we saw in this audience. It's a very small tendency. And so many things became clearer to me when I realized that most people are not like me. And I kind of had to rewrite the book once I understood that I wasn't typical. And by the way, I, I, I remember going to my husband. I was like, guess what? I'm like this extreme personality. And he's like, you think? <laughs> and I'm like, How did you know? And he said, I'm married to you. Like, everybody knew this except for me. Like, I thought, oh, you know. And then um, obligers, and almost everybody is an obliger or a questioner. That's by, those are the, by far the two dominant ones, which has a lot of implications if you're a healthcare professional or a teacher or a boss or a team manager um, or a spouse or a parent. 
because usually what you need to focus on is either giving people external accountability, which will allow them, allow them to meet their inner expectations, or you need to focus on giving them the reasons that they need, the justifications they need in order to accept what you're asking them to do. Because if they don't, if they don't accept it, they won't meet it. And if you, so if you want them to do something, you have to give them that information in, until they're satisfied. So the four tendencies came up because one of the weird things when I started doing the habit research was that the habit experts act as though everybody is the same. If it works for you, it'll work for me. You know, you like habits as much as I like habits. That's obviously not true, right? Like, just in my own family, I could see that that wasn't true. So I wanted to figure out some framework that would allow us to make distinctions among people. But, and I looked and I looked for something like that. In the happiness research, there's tons of scales like that. But in habits, there was no way of putting people onto some kind of range. So I had to come up with this. And I have to say, it was, the, it was probably the most intellectually demanding thing that I've ever done in my life was to identify these four tendencies and, and how they relate to each other. Well, obviously, being a rebel, I immediately didn't want to believe in any of them. But I have to say, they work. But do you, do you felt like, yes, this, this described Yeah, I me. really did. And I think you say in the book that it is possible to be a mix of two things. Not really. But, yeah, not really. It is quickly revealed that actually, if you look at it properly and you answer all the questions honestly, everybody does fall into one of those four tendencies. But what's interesting, and you've already kind of alluded to this, is this idea that we are more the same than we are different. And this is something that comes up in your work occasionally, that we all like to think that we're individuals and really we're really special. <laughs> and we do all fit into these different categories. But there are also loads of habits that we, where we can learn from other people because we have a lot of more commonality than we imagine, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the most... So in the book, what I do is identify the 21 different strategies that people can use, whether they're making or breaking a habit. And one of the most powerful strategies is the strategy of other people, which is understanding how other people affect us and how we affect other people. Because it's easy to think of ourselves acting in isolation, but in fact, we're rapidly swapping habits back and forth. Sometimes almost, you know, uh, in a trivial way, like some random person you meet at a party will make some comment and it'll for some reason fire off some major habit change that's actually more common than you would think and so yeah, it's very under, under important to understand how other people are influencing us especially if we're trying to change our habits in a way that's different mm -hmm. from the way their habits are which can be really really challenging so you want to understand well, how, are, how do I want to be the same from them and how might I want to be different from them? Well, I think one way that this really comes out in your work is when you write about your relationship with your sister, who's very different to you. She's not an upholder. And you're now doing the podcast with her. Yeah. Is that right? So how does that work? Because y even when I was reading the book, I was thinking, oh, I can't believe these two are even sisters. Yeah. They, they're so different. Yeah. Um, no, it's so fun to do the podcast. So the podcast is called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and we talk about for about 25 minutes a week about ideas for how to be happier, how to have better habits, um, our own experiences, which since we're sisters, we don't really let each other get away with much. So it's tons of fun. But I think Elizabeth, my sister, um, makes a good foil for me because she is very different from me, and she's an obliger. Um, and so a lot of the, and she's very gracious about allowing me to try to use her as a guinea pig to change her habits. And, um, and so I think it's good because it shows, 
you know, in writing the book, I always write so much from my own experience, but it, it, it's one way to show, well, not everybody believes this or not everybody does it this way. For instance, um, one of the, my sister's a type 1 diabetic, and for a type 1 diabetic, managing blood sugar is just of extraordinary importance, and exercise really helps with that. But she's a TV writer in Los Angeles. She's very successful. She has a little kid. She just wasn't exercising. And so, of course, with my habit change philosophy, I was like, we're going to, you know, what are you going to do? And, well, you know. and then I realized the thing about Alyssa, she doesn't have time to exercise. So I wrote her an email and I was like, will you please allow me to buy you a treadmill desk for your birthday? And she immediately wrote back, let me ponder that because she knew what, you know, <laughs> you know, if she let unleashed me, what might happen. But then she allowed me to buy her a treadmill desk. And so now she walks between five and seven miles a day at work. So she doesn't have to go to an exercise class. So part of it is that even just seeing like, well, everybody's has different circumstances. So given these different circumstances, given your different nature, given the habits you want to acquire, what are the different strategies you could use? What are the different, the, what are the different just thing, ideas? And I tried to pack the book with lots and lots of examples because I feel like often that's what's most useful is you sort of understand a principle like, oh yeah, I get how accountability helps me with my habits. But then when you see how different people, what they, they specifically did, then it kind of fires your imagination. And so Alyssa's great because since she's different from me, her approach to habits is different. And so it sort of shines a light on a whole different way of thinking about things. You do seem to be able to take people as case studies and change them. And it happens with your husband a bit, it happens with your sister. Um, and also you've done it for loads of readers and on your blog and loads of exa brilliant examples. Is there anyone you found who's resistant to this or any situations that are resistant where you couldn't make a habit change? Well, see, now what I know is with a rebel is if I know somebody's a rebel, I never try to tell them what to do because that's going to have exactly the opposite effect. So I would say, I would completely say something like, you know, something you could try if you felt like it or, you know, one thing that some people like doing, maybe you would like doing it. So I've learned don't try to change, don't suggest any change because that will only ignite in them the spirit of opposition. But do you think it's possible for anyone to change any bad habit? Well, that's sort of a, an interesting question I, because what can they do is something that's sort of unknowable. Does everybody who have a, has a bad habit that wants to change it succeed? No. Could they succeed if they tried in a different way? I mean, I say there's a lot of things people can try and often when people feel like they can't change it, I think they haven't really understood all their options. You know, like maybe they didn't, like one thing that's very, that took me a long, long time to understand is, and yet it's so important for habits, I, 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 but it eluded my vision for so long, is that a lot of times when we have a habit that we cannot change, like we want to change it, but we can't change it, but we don't know why we can't change it, it has, it comes down to the idea of identity, that there's some identity that's precious to us and yet it conflicts with some habit we want to change. And, but how can you change a habit if that means giving up a precious identity? So for instance, in the book, one of the people that I talked to, one of my guinea pigs, is my friend Maria, who wanted to drink less. She didn't want to give up drinking. She didn't have a drinking problem. But she, she just felt like, ah, you know, then I start slower the next morning. I don't feel great. I don't remember things as well. Like, I just want to drink less. I've got in the habit of drinking just a little bit, you know, one or two too many glasses of wine. 
but, and, but she was having a lot of trouble. And as an upholder, my whole thing was, what are the rules? Here are the rules. Maria, when, you go out, when you're having dinner with your husband, no wine. When you go out to dinner on a normal night, have one. When you're going out and it's a special occasion, you can have three. You know, like, I was like, what are the rules? And it wasn't working for her. But then I realized, she kept saying to me, you know, I'm Italian. I love good food and wine. I'm the life of the party. And it's like she had to work on that identity before she could change her habit because she had to think through what did it mean to be Italian? What did it mean to be the life of the party? She's like the most fun person ever. And I said to her, Maria, you're the most fun ever, whether you're drinking or not. And she's like, I know, I am the most fun. <laughs> and she is. Like, you know, it, that was not core to her identity. And once she really thought that through, she was able to let it go. But it happens a lot. Like if you think of yourself, let's say you decide, okay, I'm really going to leave work every night at 6.30. But you think of yourself as a workaholic. How can you be a workaholic and leave work at 6.30? They're inconsistent. They're incompatible. And so in order to change the habit, you have to think through how the identity would change. And so often, like, so I think sometimes people feel like they can't change a habit. But what I try to do in the book is to show all the different avenues and everything that you should consider so that, you know, maybe you just haven't tried the right key. You know, maybe there's something that means that it's not as hard as you think, but you just somehow haven't understood the situation in a way that would allow you to do the thing that would make the difference. And through all the research that you've done for Happiness Project and for Better Than Before on Habits, what are the key changes that you've made to your life that have made a positive difference for you? Well, I've done so many things. I mean, because I've been working on it for so long, I've done so many things. One, one thing I love to do is join or start a group. I think I've joined or started like 13 groups um, since I started the Happiness Project because there's such an engine of happiness for me. So I have so many more friends and I do so many more fun things. Like this podcast, one of the things I learned from the Happiness Project is that novelty and challenge make people happier. So when I had the opportunity to do this podcast, I was thinking like, yeah, it makes me feel insecure and dumb and maybe it'll fail and it's going to be a lot of extra work and I don't really know what I'm doing and I don't know anything about it and that's going to be rough. But then I thought, but probably I'll get through it and it'll be so exciting and exhilarating and I'll have this whole new identity. And that's exactly what's happened. Like my sister and I, we're going to a conference. I'm like, let's go to a conference together. She's like, let's do it. You know, we're going to go off on this like sisterly adventure as podcasters. This is the sort of thing upholders get excited about, yeah. going to a conference. Well, it's going with my sister. It. I'm going with my sister. Okay. So it's not just, yeah. I mean, I agree. That's pretty, I mean, that's, that's where I'm coming from. What can I say? Um, but if, I ha if you said, like, what is the most radical habit that I've changed, um, I, would, I think that the most radical habit that I've changed in the context of habits um, that has made me also has made me much happier is that, um, as I describe in the book, I read Gary Tobbs' book, Why We Get Fat, and overnight changed almost all my eating habits. I mean, everything I went to the opposite except for green leafy vegetables, which I ate then and I continue to eat now. I'm one of those low carb fanatics that you, realize, you read about. I, realize, I mean, I really don't eat, I mean, nuts is as high carb as I go. Um, and I love it. And for me, it's been a hugely beneficial habit change. The change to my eating habits has been so great for me. Um, but for many people, it seems like a very, very big change. And, and, and it, it happened to me before. And I say it happened to me because that's how it felt. It felt like something that happened to me. And I describe it in the book as the strategy of the lightning bolt, which is when a new idea hits you or a new realization, and all of a sudden your habits change. Like if you've ever seen somebody who has like 
sometimes like you know somebody will be have a kind of a brush with death you know like they'll have a mild heart attack and they're like that's it you know i'm doing everything differently and then overnight they can change habits that seemed you know unreachable um but this had happened to me now it's happened to me like three and a half years ago and when it happened, it was before I had studied anything about habits, and I was completely puzzled by what happened, because you, I always thought of habits as changing slowly and gradually, and you have to really work on it, and I was sort of mystified by what had befallen me, because I was just like, I read a book, and then overnight I did everything differently. Um, so then, but then when I wrote the book, I said, oh, it's the strategy of the lightning bolt. This is a strategy, this is one of the 21 strategies. This strategy is one you really can't induce. It sort of happens to you, which is frustrating because it's a really easy way to change habits. Um, but I think if we're aware that when it happens to us, just understand that this is happening, then you can take advantage of it better um, because it is a very powerful way to change habits. Okay, so this is the book I also need to read. Why We Get oh, Fat, right? Yeah, it's, it's okay. fascinating. Fascinating and, and We can see that you have read this book, and I have not. Um, but I wanted to ask you, seeing as we are in the Apple Store, uh, obviously digital habits are one of the things that we all struggle with, much as we love our digital devices, of course. Um, where are the areas that you've managed to make changes? What do you recommend for people? What, have, what questions do people come to you with about managing digital habits? Yeah, I mean, as I was doing all the research for this, I came up with what I call the essential seven, and it turns out that every, like, just about any habit that somebody comes up with that they want to change falls into one of seven categories. And I, I think that the digital one that you're referring to is in the rest, relax, and enjoy um, uh, category because people feel like they love their devices but then they, they feel like I'm never at leisure because I'm always responding to work emails or I'm I yes I love watching videos on my phone but then I stay up until 3 a.m. binge watching House of Cards or you know they like they can't control it and so there are some strategies that work really well with digital um, one is the strategy of abstaining, which is that for some people it's easier to manage a strong temptation by giving it up altogether. So like my sister deleted Candy Crush. She cannot play a little Candy Crush, you know, and it was using up a lot of her time, so she got rid of it. So sometimes you just have to say, Ruzzle. A friend of mine had to get rid of Ruzzle. You know, it was just it, taking up too much time. Um, another one is scheduling. So, um, like, every night I give myself quitting time. And it's different every night because my schedule changes. But I s pick a point and I'm like, this is quitting time. And after quitting time, I don't do any more work. I don't check work email. I don't go on the Internet unless I'm looking up some, you know, like, writing something, you know, looking up something for fun. Um, so scheduling, and sometimes people, you can use technology to bl block technology by using software that like blocks your, blocks your um, access to the internet during certain times, like especially if you have very like work that you want to do where you want to concentrate or you want to be free from it. Um, the strategy of convenience and the strategy of inconvenience. So a lot of times, I'll see somebody walking around with their phone in their back pocket, and they're like, why is it that I can't stop myself from checking my email or, you know, checking my phone? I'm like, well, because it's right there. Like, you just reach for it. You can't help yourself. It's that intermittent reinforcement that we all know from slot machines. It's so powerful. So put your phone in an inconvenient place. Like, put it on a high shelf behind a closed door so that if you get sweaty and shaky and you have to check your phone, it, you can. It's right there. But you can't just grab it. Um, and some people are very, they don't, they just pretend to themselves, you, you know, I mean, they sort of go through the motions of wanting to do things differently, but they don't really like this guy. I know. I mean, I couldn't believe this. So he's like, 
because a lot of times people will focus on their mindset instead of their behavior. I'm always like, go straight to the behavior. Who can change their mindset or their, their emotions? It's too hard. So think about your behavior. So he's like, oh, I'm always driving and checking my phone and texting, and I know that it's insanely dangerous, but I just can't resist. So how can I change, like, how can I change my habits? How can I make safety more of a priority in my mind? I'm like, don't do that. Put your phone on, on silent and put it on the back seat on the floor. You can't get, you won't hear it, and you can't reach it. And he was like, well, I don't want to do that. I'm like, well, right, because what you really, you're not being honest with yourself. You really want to keep checking your phone and pretending like, oh, well, I really know this is a bad idea. I'm going to change any second. If it's right there and it's going off, you're going to check it. Like, that's just human nature. Curiosity killed a cat, and it's also going to kill somebody, kill somebody who's texting. Um, so put it in the back seat so you can't reach it. If it's so inconvenient, then... So there's a lot... So the idea is, is that with all the strategies, you can think of all the different things that you could do around a particular habit. Because usually there's several things that you could do around one habit that could help cement it into place. Okay, thank you. I'm going to open up to questions in a sec. This is my favorite part. Um, but first of all, I just wanted to um, ask you, I, I recently uh, listened to a really good podcast with Seth Godin. Who oh, I, I love think Seth Godin's work. I haven't listened to his yeah, podcast, but I've read it, uh, tons of his books. Brilliant his, writer yes. on human, the same kind of things yeah. as you, you know, psychology, right. with a human Kind nature. of a marketing angle, yeah. yeah. And he's, like you, is an incredibly productive and prolific person who interacts with loads of his readers. Uh, he blogs every, he's blogged every single day for the past five years without fail. He sends a blog to your inbox every single day, even if it's only one line long. And the guy... He's the master of the short yeah, post, yeah. I think. He does that really and well. And this guy was interviewing him and he said, how do you do this? How do you be so productive? And he said, it's very simple. I don't watch television ever. I never meet anyone. And I never go for lunch. And that's it. <laughs> and I wondered if you had anything similar to that. But see, I think that's a perfect illustration of the fact that like we're all different and then we're all going to we all have to approach the question of how would we form habits ourselves that would allow us to succeed because the fact is that wouldn't work for a lot of people. It's I wouldn't want life without lunch with other people. I wouldn't want to never meet somebody. You know, I mean, and, and, and so that's interesting. That's his strategy. But I think for all of us, the thing is, is not to, like, pick a person like Seth Godin or Benjamin Franklin or Steve Jobs or your sister-in-law or whoever and say, like, I'm going to do what that person did. They're happy, successful, productive. So if I do exactly what they do, I'll have similar success. Because, because probably it won't work for you in the same way because we're all different and we all need to shape our habits to ourselves. And so it's fascinating to me that that's what he does. And it sort of opens up that possibility. Like, wow, if I just never watch TV, how many hours more in my week would I have? Maybe it's worth an experiment. Like, maybe try it and see how much you miss it. A lot of times we do stuff just because we're in the habit of doing it. We don't even really enjoy it, you know? And it's like, well, if you gave that up, maybe it would be amazing. Um, or maybe you're like, you know, watching Game of Thrones is the joy of my life. There's no way I'm giving up Game of Thrones, but... Um, but maybe, maybe I do meet with too many, you know, so it's, I think it can be very suggestive and it can give us really good ideas, but I think sometimes people think it's just like, there's a magic one size fits all solution. And if I could just imitate the right person, then everything is going to work out for me. Whereas in fact, it's like, well, are you a morning person or a night person? Are you an introvert? Or are you an extrovert? Are you, do you like simplicity or do you like abundance? Do you know, um, do you do better when you give things up altogether, when you indulge in moderation? Do you, do you like to work long and steadily or do you like to sprint at the end, which has a huge implication for your workplace, workplace habits? So I think it's all a question of, um, 
figuring out yourself and how to understand yourself so that you can shape the habits to suit you instead of just pasting them in and hoping they work. Excellent response. Great. Do we have any questions? Do we have a mic? To you get a gold yeah, star a if you ask the first here. question. Yeah, oh, and the there, a, there a hand goes up. Gold star for you. Thank you. Um, hi there. Um, I was just going to ask you, <clears throat> from a social psychology perspective, um, what was your sample space for your theories? And also, did you consider it as a, a first world type scenario or more universal to that? Um, well, I did this just from my observation, so I didn't, I didn't do it from observation to conclusion. I just saw what I saw and uh, tried to put a name on it. Which I'm sort of a street scientist. What I'm trying to do is understand what's happening right in front of us. Um, and this is, but I must say that it's very robust, it's predictive, and um, also like I'm seeing like more and more examples like if I read biographies and memoirs, it'll, you'll see, like if you've ever, if, if anybody's read the amazing autobiography by Andre Agassi Open, um, which I'm not interested in tennis, but so many people had told me this was a fantastic book that I read it. I was like shaking as I read it because he's such an obliger. Like everything he says and even like weird quirks, it's so, I, I had so predicted like what you could say. So I, I didn't come to it from studying and then concluding. I just, I just observed what I could observe. Now, is it a first word problem or not? So this is one of the things, the way, the way I think about the world is, again, I'm just trying to understand what I see and talk about my conclusions, my analysis. And so I never try to do cross-cultural because I don't know what it's like to be Japanese. I don't know what it's like to be Indian. And so, I, and, you know, and I don't know what it would have been like 150 years ago. So I really am just trying to understand what's right around me. And it seems that from that, many people are able to understand themselves better, even if they come from um, very different backgrounds. So, but it's an interesting question that I just don't know. Great question. Thank you so much. There was another one around here. Oh, yes, right here, if you could pass forward. Thank you. Nothing wrong with hashtag first world problems, I think. So um, if, if, if you meet someone and you want to help them and in a good way and they're, they're not receiving the, 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 the energy you're giving, how can you improve that? Like to let them know that you, you care about them, but in a, in a subtle way? That is a very good question. Um, and it can be very, very frustrating when you feel like someone's doing something that's um, not productive or actually harmful and you're not able to, I have this guy I know, his father just refuses to take his medicine or do his physical therapy. And it really matters. I mean, and my friend is just frantic because he's like, why can't, what can I do to try to help? And um, if a person is resisting help, there's really nothing you can do because they're the boss of them and it's very hard. And it's, but it's good to know the tendencies because maybe if they're, if they're an obliger, providing external accountability, if they want it, is something that can help. If it's a rebel, you don't want to do anything. Here's my, one of my favorite rebel stories. So a friend of mine has a rebel son and a rebel father. So she goes with her rebel father to the doctor and the doctor is like, Mr. So-and-so, you're in a really high risk category. You have to take that medicine or you're going to die and you have to do it and you've got to, you know, you must, must, must take this medicine. So they get out of the street and he looks at her and says, well, what do you think? Should I take the medicine? She says, ah, oh, no, I wouldn't bother. And he said, what, you want me to die? 
<laughs> and he takes it. So, I mean, it's like, how do you, what do you do? But if you are trying to be helpful to one person, a great, one great strategy that helps if you're close to the person is the strategy of convenience. To an overwhelming degree, we are much more likely to do behavior if it's even slightly more convenient. Like, should you pay a little more for the gym across the street from your house or your job? Yes, you should, because just even one block out of your way is gonna make you that much less likely to go. You wanna make it as convenient as possible. And sometimes, you can make something more convenient for a person. So let's say they're not taking their prescription medication. You could say, I'll pick up the prescription for you. I'll get one of those trays and put a pill in each day of the week. I'll stand there and say, hey, before you have your first cup of coffee in the morning, you need to take your pill. Sometimes you can help just by making it so convenient for them that they'll do it. Obviously, this requires a huge amount of commitment from you, and we're not always like right there to be doing something. But often that is something where if you can figure out a way or, you know, see, it, it, figure out, oh, well, you need to go to rehab, but it's too far from your apartment. Let me help you and do the research and see if we can come up with a better solution. Because sometimes people are just like, oh, well, it just doesn't work for me. I can't do it. But if you can take the time to see if there's shortcuts they can take, sometimes that can help. But really, the only person we can change is ourselves in the end. And it can be very frustrating when you see somebody who you feel like, they could change, and if they would change, they'd be happier or healthier or more productive, and yet they just won't for some reason. It's hard. Brilliant. Thank you. Any more questions? Let's go to this lady here, and then we'll come to you here. And then, and then. Hi. Um, I know you did the happiness project, but you weren't depressed or anything. You were happy, but you wanted to be happier. So I wonder, um, I am actually from New York City, so I just moved here. And honestly, when I got your book, I haven't really read it. I got it because everyone was having it. And then I realized... That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. buy it. You can all buy it for that reason. Yeah. yeah. So. Tell your friends to buy it for that reason. You need to write a book called The Honesty Project. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. So then I realized um, moving to London, it, it has been so different for me. And then I went back to your books. And then I realize, and I wonder if is there any person throughout the project or since the happiness project came that was depressed or was sad, or in which circumstances have they have they achieved happiness? Or yeah, no, it's it's interesting because when I wrote the happiness project, I was very concerned, and I make the very the distinction that there's happiness, unhappiness, and depression, and that I consider depression like a third category. And I had no, I I have enormous belief in the in depression, and that it's an urgent problem that demands every possible solution, and that I was not trying to address depression. Um, but that I was just sort of talking about ordinary happiness and unhappiness. But, and I was afraid, really, that people who were either depressed or very unhappy would almost feel like my, my book was offensively flip. Like, here I am talking about making your bed, and, like, these people are dealing with, like, huge issues that were very, but really, really, um, really challenging. And the thing that was... Um, so I thought about that a lot as I was writing it. Um, but because I wrote from the, my own perspective, like, that was the perspective that I came from. But one of the things that's been really gratifying since the book came out is I've heard from many people who have come from very, very difficult situations who said that they found the book helpful. And I think the main point is, is that 
we should try to be as happy as we can be under our circumstances. That sometimes it's not possible to be happy. Sometimes it's not even appropriate. We wouldn't even want to be happier, you know, because something's going on which appropriately requires us to be feeling very sad or very guilty or very indignant or whatever it is, and that's the appropriate reaction. But, but often there are things that you can do to be as happy as you can be, and what happens when you're as happy as you can be is you can manage the situation better. I mean, I remember this when my daughter, my daughter was in the, uh, when she was born, she was born very early, so she was in the intensive care. And my whole, uh, like, instinct was to just be there and never sleep and never eat and just to be so, like, intensely hanging over her. And one afternoon, my husband forced me to go to a movie. And at the time, I found this, like, I was so angry and it seemed so inappropriate. But it was so, it was such a smart thing for him to do because I got, for two hours, I got mental relief. And when I came back, I was so much calmer and I was so much ab more able to have perspective and to understand the situation, which was fine. Like, my daughter was fine, you know? I didn't need to be having this intense level. And it wasn't making me a better helper for her. I wasn't a better mother because of it. I was worse because I was running myself I was burning myself out, running myself ragged. And so sometimes when you understand, like, well, what could you do to make yourself as happy as you can be, then you almost arm yourself or, like, recharge your battery in a way that allows you then to deal with a challenging circumstance that's better. So that's been a very gratifying thing, is that many people have said that it's been helpful to them, even in very different circumstances. Excellent. Let's take, I think we've got three questions. We'll take them all together. Perfect. The first question was about psychological habits, oh, okay. in particular, how to manage worry, anxiety, okay. Okay. In general, in the book, I don't talk about uh, habits of mind. I don't talk about addictions, compulsions, nervous habits, or habits of mind. So what you're talking about is a habit of mind. But I will say specifically on worry, there's a very funny strategy that works with worry, which is scheduling, which is you set aside a certain time to worry, and then you don't worry outside of that time. So if you feel the impulse to worry, you say, wait, I'm going to worry about that at 3 o'clock because I worry from 3 to 3.30. As weird as this sounds, for many people, it's very freeing. Also, if, there's, if you find yourself turning something over and over in your mind, if you write it down, because like especially at night, night thoughts, your brain is like, don't forget this, don't forget this, this is really important. But if you write it down, it's like your brain says, okay, well, we don't need to remember this because we've got it written down, and then you can let it go. Um, so those are a few quick things, but really in the book, I'm talking about habits of behavior or like things that are, ver that are very concrete that we can manage through behavior. Great. And the next question was about the connection between happiness and habits. So right. what are the habits that you can adopt which are going to most affect your happiness rating? Um, well, if you had to say, like, what, are the, what, like, what is the key to happiness, um, one of the best answers is, and ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists would agree with this, is relationships. That people need to be happy, we need intimate, enduring bonds. We need to be able to confide. We need to be able to um, belong. We need to be able to give support and get support. And so any habit related to relationships is, um, is something that's going to make you happier. So like if you join a book group or, or any kind of group, like that gets you in the habit of seeing these people. That's really good. Um, uh, any, or, you know, I kiss him, but people make fun of me because I kiss my husband in the morning and I kiss him at night. And some people say, well, that doesn't seem very authentic, but it's like, well, I'd rather kiss him than not kiss him. And, you know, if it's a habit, then you know that you're going to do it. And usually if you act a certain way, you feel that way more. Um, on the podcast, my sister and I talked about a habit that we've just picked up. It was my mother's idea, actually. It's called Update. 
And so what we realized is that, you know this weird thing where like if you see somebody every single day, you have a million things to tell them, but if you see somebody you know, once every four months, you're like, what's going on? Oh, not much, what's going on with you? Oh, not much, I mean, you have nothing to say to each other. So my mother said, well, this, uh, like, this is, we don't want this to happen. So we started this habit where a couple times a week we send an email called update and it's just like the, the most, and the motto of update is it's okay to be boring. So it'll be really like, I went to go get my car serviced today, you know, this type of thing. Um, and, uh, and you don't have to reply. So it's like no, no work, no, and you just throw it out there. And it's amazing how this little tiny habit, which takes almost no time or energy, just makes me feel so much more connected to my family. And then when I talk to them, I'm like, oh yeah, what happened with that? Or, oh, you know, you just feel more in the swing. And so these, so the habits, re habits related to relationships are really key. Um, but for, if, if for everyone, it's going to be different. Because, and also what habits they need to work on. Because maybe you don't have any problem with, like, your eating habits don't cause you any anxiety or worry. But for somebody else, that's, like, the top of their list. Or maybe you don't have trouble with procrastination. But for somebody else, it's crippling. So it's kind of like identifying for you which habits are getting in the way and then tackling them so you hopefully can eliminate whatever's dragging you down. I love your family. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. How often do you have to send the update email? No, you don't have to. It's just like every couple days. Every just, couple of but days. But there's no, it's a habit that does, it's not like okay. not every third day. Do you have to put update in the subject box? Well, that we do that just because it's okay. easier than thinking of checking. a new title. Okay, you know? brilliant. If we try to keep it as minimally, <laughs> minimal effort as possible. Excellent. So the next question is a very good one. The best strategy for long-term habit retention Right. What makes you stick with a good habit once right. you've switched to it? Right. Now, so the, here's the thing about New Year's resolution. It is true that the people who make New Year's resolution, most, many, many, I think like half are abandoned, almost half are abandoned by mid-February, and then like a good half are abandoned by July. But if you look at the people who made a resolution versus the people who made no resolution at all, as you might expect, people who make a resolution do much better. So you might have a bad track record, but you're still better off trying because you're more likely to succeed. So um, so what can you do to, to try to stick to it? So there are two strategies related to that. One is the strategy of safeguards, and this is the idea that you plan to fail. So you know, instead of just saying like, oh, I'm gonna be successful from here on out, you really think about like, well, what am I gonna do when I'm on, I'm on vacation? What am I gonna do at a business dinner? What am I gonna do if it rains? What, if it what am I gonna do if one of my kids gets sick? Um, what am I gonna do if I move? Oh yeah, now you live in London, that's gonna change all your habits. You know, what, uh, thinking about it. And that's Don't and make her more depressed. Right, right, right. right. Well, uh, you know, it, but so if then planning is, um, if this happens, then what will I do? Because if you think about it in advance, you're much better able um, to do a better job. Now here's the thing about slipping up. Some people assume that if they really load themselves with guilt and shame, if they slip up, that they're gonna do a better job, that that's somehow gonna energize them to do a better job with their habits. In fact, research shows that people do much better on getting back into, into the saddle if they show themselves self-compassion. If they say, you know, it wasn't my best day, I learned from that, I won't do that again, and get back in. So you don't wanna, you, you want to be as consistent as you can be. That's the best way to build habits. Yes, you want to be as consistent as you can be, especially at the beginning. But you also want to remember, you know, a slip up is just a slip up. Fail small, not big. And, um, but then there's also the strategy of loophole spotting. And I have to say, I love all my 21 strategies. They're all super powerful. But I liked writing the loophole spotting strategy the most because they are so hilarious. 
Um, there are 10 categories of loopholes that we invoke because because the, we're like cell phones searching for a signal. You know, oh, I'm totally committed to keeping my good habit, but what do you know? Just sitting here right now, I just thought of the reason why I'm totally off the hook. Who knew? You only live once. All right, yeah, I, I can't pass this up, right, if you only live once. And it doesn't matter what I do today because starting tomorrow, I'm going to be so good. It doesn't matter what I do, um, or, or I've been so good already, it doesn't matter what I do today. Or, you know what, other people are going to be uncomfortable if I don't have this. Or, well, you know, the label says it's healthy, so it's got to be okay. You know, they, there's these 10 categories, and people, all, we're such good advocates for ourselves. I have heard people maybe in one paragraph cycle through five categories. Like, in my mind, I'm trying to tick off the right box, and I can't even keep up because they're just, they're just throwing every everything at it. It's hilarious. Um, and so I think one of the things about it is to recognize the loopholes. Most, most of us have a favorite or two that we constantly invoke. And what I found from talking to people, and certainly from myself, is once you see the one that you turn to, you can kind of bust yourself. And you'll be in a situation and you'll be like, wait a minute, you know, um, I'm invoking a loophole here. I don't Maybe I don't want to. Maybe I want to reject the loophole. Maybe I want to think about this differently. Maybe I want to stick to my good habit. I thought of this reason why I'm off the hook. Maybe I don't want to let myself off the hook. Mm, very good. I'm the queen of loopholes. Oh, what's your favorite loophole? Um, well, my favorite loophole is probably um, I deserve this. That's moral licensing loophole. <laughs> oh, that's, licensing that's moral licensing. Okay. I've been so good. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay, let's not go there. Um, so in a minute, I'm going to ask you to sum up your entire philosophy in one sentence okay. by what's the best piece of advice in one sentence. Um, but first of all, I just wanted to say we, we need to finish up. Um, so so sorry to anyone who didn't get a chance to ask a question. Thank you for all your amazing questions. Um, Gretchen is going to stick around for a bit. If you want to get one of the cards signed um, or ask her other questions, take a picture. Please do tweet at hashtag better than before. Do check out uh, the podcast and the iBook. I thoroughly recommend. Uh, before, and I wanted to say a huge thank you to our brilliant um, signer, Naomi, as well. He's been great. It's great to have her here. And the thing I would say before you answer this question is the thing I've taken away from your writing, most of all, I think it's the number one rule of the Happiness Project is be Gretchen. Is that right? Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. so the number one rule is, is be you. And that, that for me, perhaps this is also licensing, <laughs> but um, the number one rule for me that I've really taken for you is, you know, be the most yourself that you can be because that is the only thing that is really going to make you happy. But your one piece of advice. Um, well, first, I want to say thank you to you for doing an amazing oh, job. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and also, we, it was interesting because we were talking about improv, and you were saying, like, even when you're doing improv, it, it's, it, it, you're trying to make it as ref to reflect yourself as possible. So this, mm -hmm. this search for who we are... Um, is so central, and that's what I would say too. You exactly—that's exactly what I would say—is that the more I, the more I study happiness, and the more I study habits, the more I realize that we can really build a happy, healthy, productive life only on the foundation of our own nature. And you would think, like, oh, it's so easy to know myself because I just hang out with myself all day, but it's so easy to forget who, like, to be distracted by who we think we ought to be, or who other people expect us to be, or who we assume we are. Or, you know, like, you're a rebel and I'm an upholder. I assume that the whole world sees the world I do, as I do, but we don't. We see the world very differently. And so you really have to say, well, what is true for me? Because then, you know, be Gretchen. It's like substitute your own name. Um, uh, because that is when you can build a life that's going to reflect your own interests, your own values, your own nature. And that's when you really 
um, can have the life you want. And, and, and just having looked at this for so long, this is why I think that habits have such a role to play. Because when you, you know, habits are 40% of everyday life. So if you change your habits, you can change your life um, to be as happy as you can be. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a great audience. And thank you, Gretchen Rubin. Thank you once again to our host, Viv Gossop, and thank you to Gretchen Ribbon. As a reminder, of course, um, Happier at Home, The Happiness Project, and Better Than Before are, of course, all available from the iBook store. And, of course, finally, thank you to you for joining us this evening. We wish you a safe and happy journey home. Thank you. Bye-bye.